So I'm going to start with the one from Hebrews, which is on page nine of your zine. And what more shall I say? I do not have time to tell about Gideon, Barak, Samson and Jephthah, about David and Samuel and the prophets, who through faith conquered kingdoms, administered justice and gained what was promised, who shut the mouths of lions, quenched the fury of the flames and escaped the edge of the sword, whose weakness was turned to strength and who became powerful in battle and routed foreign armies. Women received back, from, back their dead, raised to life again. There were others who were tortured, refusing to be released so that they might gain an even better resurrection. Some faced years and floggings and even chains and imprisonment. They were put to death by stoning. They were sawn in two. They were killed by the sword. They went about in sheepskins and goatskins, destitute, persecuted and ill-treated. The world was not worthy of them. They wandered in deserts and mountains, living in caves and in holes in the ground. These were all commended for their faith, yet none of them received what had been promised, since God had planned something better for us, so that only together with us would they be made perfect. And we're going to continue on to Daniel 3. King Nebuchadnezzar made an image of gold, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide, and set it up on the plain of Dura in the province of Babylon. He then summoned the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial officials to come to the dedication of the image he had set up. So the satraps, prefects, governors, advisers, treasurers, judges, magistrates, and all the other provincial of officials assembled for the dedication of the image that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up, and they stood before it. Then the herald loudly proclaimed, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. Whoever does not fall down and worship will immediately be thrown into a blazing furnace. Therefore, as soon as they heard the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, and all kinds of music, all the nations and peoples of every language fell down and worshipped the image of God that King Nebuchadnezzar had set up. At this time, some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. They said to King Nebuchadnezzar, "'May the king live forever.' Your majesty has issued a decree that everyone who hears the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music must fall down and worship the image of gold, and that whoever does not fall down and worship will be thrown into a blazing furnace. But there are some Jews whom you have set over the affairs of the province of Babylon, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, who pay no attention to you, your majesty. They neither serve your gods nor worship the image of gold you have set up. Furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnago. So these men were brought before the king. And Nebuchadnezzar said to them, Is it true, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnago, that you do not serve my gods or worship the image of gold I have set up? Now when you hear the sound of the horn, flutes, the lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, if you are ready to fall down and worship the image I made, very good. But if you do not worship it, you'll be thrown immediately into a blazing furnace. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnago replied to him, King Nebuchadnezzar, we do not need to defend ourselves before you in this matter. If we are thrown into the blazing furnace, the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, 
and he will deliver us from your majesty's hand. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. Then Nebuchadnezzar was furious with Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, and his attitude towards them changed. He ordered the furnace to be heated seven times hotter than usual and commanded some of the strongest soldiers in the army to tie up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnago and throw them into the blazing furnace. So these men, wearing their robes, trousers, turbans, and other clothes, were bound and thrown into the blazing furnace. The king's command was so urgent and the furnace so hot that the flames of the fire killed the soldiers who took up Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnago. And these three men, firmly tied, fell into the blazing furnace. Then King Nebuchadnezzar leaped to his feet in amazement and asked his advisers, weren't there three men that we tied up and threw into the fire? They replied, certainly, your majesty. He said, look, I see four men walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, and the fourth looks like a son of the gods. Nebuchadnezzar then approached the opening of the blazing furnace and shouted, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnero, servants of the Most High God, come out, come here. So Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnego came out of the fire, and the satraps, prefects, governors, and royal advisers crowded around them. They saw that the fire had not harmed their bodies, nor was a hair of their head singed. Their robes were not scorched, and there was no smell of fire on them. Then Nebuchadnezzar said, Praise be to the God of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnego, who has sent his angel and rescued his servants. They trusted in him and defied the king's command and were willing to give up their lives rather than serve or worship any god except their own god. Therefore I decree that the people of any nation or language who say anything against the god of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnego be cut into pieces and their houses be turned into piles of rubble, for no other god can save in this way. Then the king promoted Shadrach, Meshach, and Abagnego in the province of Babylon. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thanks, Veronica. Let's pray, shall we? Let's pray. Father, this in many ways is a story of resistance in the face of evil, in the face of pressure. Uh, it's a story of, uh, of the power and presence of, uh, of faithful people willing to be courageous in the face of, uh, of such evil. It's a story of your presence in the fire. And it's a story in the end about resurrection uh, in the midst of death. So I pray that you'll give us the same settled courage of Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego and of Jesus Christ, our Lord, in whose name we pray. Amen. <clears throat> so, scenario. Your neighbour grabs you on your street, pulls you into his home and pulls down the blinds. You're in Babylon and it's Monday morning. Your neighbour and, and you, you, you've been following the news, you don't live far from the plain of Jura and you're seeing the construction programme of the king. An image of gold, 3 verse 1, 60 cubits high and 6 cubits wide. Now, you don't come from these parts. You know, uh, you know the statue in metric. It's 27 metres high. 
or maybe your neighbour is a baby boomer, he knows it as 90 feet high. Either way, it's government madness. An image of gold set up by a nervous and despotic king, uh, I say that like it's another kind of, of despot, the academy and the civil service will be present, everyone will be standing in front of uh, this statue, and uh, the scene will be familiar through history. Uh, chapter 3, verse 4, nations and peoples of every language, this is what you're commanded to do, is totalitarianism. As soon as you hear the sound of the horn, flute, zither, lyre and harp, all kinds of music, and, and as soon as you hear the almighty racket, you must fall down and worship the image of gold that King Nebuchadnezzar has set up with consequences uh, for those who don't, namely that you'll be thrown into a blazing furnace. It's all very Hunger Games. It's like the Cultural Revolution. You must do what we say. And historic too, Nebuchadnezzar was a real character in history. Now you and your neighbour process this behind the closed blinds. You know the deal in Babylon, keep your head low and you'll be okay. Just keep your religion to yourself. Part of you buys the narrative. Uh, you, know, you know that, um, oh thank you, it's very kind. I do have one right there but... That even works. It's an act of kindness, isn't it? Jesus says, whoever offers a cup of water in my name will not fail to receive their reward. (laughs) In Christ's name. Five services today. That's what happens when the staff walk away for the long weekend. Part of you wants to buy the narrative. Nebuchadnezzar, things have been safer since Nebuchadnezzar took over. That's what happens when you've got a strong man sort of ruling the show. Trains run on time, the crime is low, and you're safe for the time being from other nations. In fact, you can build houses and live prosperously, as, as Jeremiah points out. But nonetheless, you're a Jew, and so you make this resolution. You are not bowing down. That's not going to happen. Because there's a God who lives, who's more powerful than Nebuchadnezzar. You have only one king, and his name is not Nebuchadnezzar, Despite uh, his demand for allegiance, you have a higher one. But that's why your neighbour has pulled you in. He's Babylonian. He only knows the air he breathes. If I can put it this way, he hasn't noticed the stink in the culture. He just knows life as it is, a bit like Australians know Australia as it is. They don't know anything different. And so he says to you, look, I like you. I don't want you to die. I just want you to know it's not hard to bow down, Uh, and it won't be for long, just as long as the music plays, you're not going to be left without a chair. You don't really have to believe it, I don't believe it either, it just requires a little adjustment of your spine, just a little knee service, it's like lip service, we all do it and you get to live. But you turn to your neighbour and you say, my name is Shadrach, I have two mates, Meshach and Abednego, And this is what we're planning to say if the king or someone else asked us why we remained standing. We're going to say something like this. We don't need to defend ourselves to you in this matter. We want you to know that the God we serve is able to rescue us from your hand, O king. Now feel the peace here, the presence of mind. They say, but even if he doesn't rescue us, even if we burn to a crisp, we want you to know, O despot Nebuchadnezzar, that we will not serve your gods, neither will we bow down and worship the image of gold that you set up. So welcome to the book of Daniel. 
It's about living well in light of the promise of the kingdom to come and of doing that in light of the human condition uh, of power and, and authority. I believe that God gave us these ancient stories to work out how to live. Um, they're written down for us. Uh, Paul says that in 1 Corinthians. He gave us these stories to show us a power that is higher than the ones we fear or tend to fear and deeper than the ones we tend to admire. So recap, where are we? We're in Babylon, uh, which is code in the Bible for a world hostile to God where those who follow Christ, the culture feels unaligned in some ways, where there's sort of pressure to believe certain things, to nod. When are we? Well, the book is set in the 6th century before Jesus, and on this histomat that I'll explain in a moment, 600 BC, cut the, cut the line across and you'll see the powers, the superpowers of the time. How do you live here? Well, what's, that's what the series is about. And I pointed out two weeks ago that like Daniel and his three friends, uh, you guys are educated, intelligent, um, qualified to serve in government, art, uh, education, business, medicine. You guys are amazing on Mondays, really. Uh, but the question, I guess, that Daniel raises is how will you do Mondays, or in this week's case, Tuesdays in Babylon? Now remember, Daniel and his friends outlive, outlast, outplay the evil. Uh, Nebuchadnezzar, Belshazzar, Belteshazzar and Darius are all uh, voted off the island. Uh, nations and powers come and go, such as this histomap. It's Rand McNally, by the way. It's a, one of six panels. It's a large, like a Senate voting piece of paper. And it's now pride of place uh, in my bathroom for my kids to look and learn. Uh, and you'll see uh, 600 uh, AD, the Chaldeans, and you'll see underneath it, Babylon reaches its zenith of splendor. <laughs> Here it is. Uh, the Persians will take over, then the Greeks, and then the Romans. Nations and powers come and go. But if you're living in the middle of it, you know, with a power that makes you afraid or an attraction that makes you admire, it's hard to get perspective, to get above it all, and uh, consider how you might live uh, with, a, with a bird's eye view. These guys live with a bird's eye view, and each chapter ends the same way, with the people faithful to God surviving, and indeed thriving in Babylon. Archbishop Hugh Latimer, a reformer, an Anglican reformer in the 17th century, lost his life to the flames, by the way. They torched him for his beliefs. He, he did not escape the flames. Uh, well, he did in resurrection. But he's fam he said, the drop of rain maketh a hole in the stone, not by violence, but by oft falling. In other words, just stay in place. Remain standing. That's the message of Daniel. You don't have to be a hero. This is not a hero narrative. Just don't get bumped off the path. Bear in mind from last week, the structure of the book on page 13, Daniel 3 relates to Daniel 6. In Daniel 3, it's a fire. In Daniel 6, it's a lion's den. Uh, but in both cases, God offers what we might call a resurrection. Uh, they were willing to die. They gave up their lives by the choice they made, uh, but God spared them. It's a resurrection for those who do not love their lives so much as to shrink from death. So three points if you're taking notes. The gods of our age, I want to introduce you an idea from a, a blogger friend of mine. 
how the pressure is applied and how do you remain standing in the face of such pressure? Firstly, the gods of our age. The first thing to recognise is we don't live in the world that Daniel lived in. That's important to recognise. And at 4pm we discussed how if you don't recognise that, then there's a, uh, an imbalance that can happen for Christians who feel like they have some power in society. These guys have no power, like the first century Christians. Some people in our morning services, and maybe you have too, have experienced life under dictators. Uh, but for many of us, that's not us. We live in Australia where there's rule of law, free and fair elections, separation of powers, freedom of information, board compliance. It doesn't stop every evil and injustice, but it does stem the tide a little bit. These things aren't, I believe, indicators of how good Australia is or how good our heart is. In fact, they open a door to how our hearts are problematic because we need these things if we don't want to descend into chaos. I love how our parliaments can stop for one parliamentarian who builds the state for a helicopter ride. I love that. I love how slow government is. I can assure you, Nebuchadnezzar's government is quick and bloodthirsty. But that's not always the case throughout history. Uh, if you look on page 13, that famous photo that gets tweeted and Facebooked, shared, August Landmesser, Nazi Germany, everyone salutes Heil Hitler. Uh, you see the circle there, uh, August Landmesser does not. He stands there with his arms folded and he becomes a sort of symbol of, you know, heck no, you know, I'm not doing it, no way. Uh, in many ways, you could argue he's a little bit like Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego, although he's not that noticeable there. Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego will be, what, five foot seven? I don't know. They'll be standing there when everybody is, you know, a foot off the ground with their, no their noses flat to the floor. They'll be noticed. Now, that's not true in our world, but we do have gods of the age. Things even our society wants you to bow down in front of. It's a challenge. My friend Stephen McAlpine, he's a blogger and a social commentator and really worth reading absolutely everything he does. You won't agree with it all, but... Uh, uh, my goodness, it'll stimulate you, stephenmcalpine.com, I think. I'll post a link to this article on my Facebook page. For those who are Facebook friends with me, I'll make it public, find me if you want, uh, and then you can read about this more deeply. But he reckons that when a society gives up on God, as we tend, tend to have done so, we end up making gods for ourselves. When we no longer believe in an ultimate, we make something else an ultimate when we give up the notion of transcendence, we make other things transcendent. To explain this, he talks about the human need for a second floor, to do life with a second floor. In other words, we do life on the first floor, jobs, work, holidays, kids, food, marriage, sex, yada yada. But we do all of this ground, first floor stuff in light of a high purpose, a second floor. Uh, we all need a sort of transcendent reason for doing what we do. Uh, put simply, meaning. You know, a space where meaning is discussed that makes sense of first four activities. He suggests that over time, our society, maybe over 50 years, maybe 200 years, have attempted to gut the second floor from Australian society, so now or Western society. Religion poisons everything. Meta-narratives will stifle your rights. Uh, the church will crush you. I'm going to 
just teach my kids ethics and values. Uh, but my friend argues we will always a- attempt then to push. We can't do life without meaning. So we'll find things on the first floor and push them up to the second floor. Our society doesn't care for God. We don't believe in gods who will keep us safe. We're not so superstitious. But he argues that our society has elevated self on the ground floor and pushed it up onto the second floor and made it a god. Desires now provide a place for meaning and personal identity. He applies it to same-sex marriage. Now, whatever you think of same-sex marriage, however you voted, I'm not here to talk about that. I do want to make a point, and Stephen McAlpine makes this point, why did this strike such a raw nerve? There's a bunch of reasons for that, and you'll have your your way of thinking about that. But Stephen McAlpine makes a case to say the Christians, you know, sort of came along and said, look, we believe marriage is important, we'll make that sort of case, but this isn't really that important. It's not as important as Jesus. This isn't really that important. I mean, this is first four stuff, life, marriage, sex, etc. We're gonna talk about God. Um, whereas he points out that society has pushed desire and therefore sexuality up onto the second floor. Desire has now become the transcendent. Uh, thing together with notions of equality. Up it goes. And he points out that the reason, one of the reasons why people were so angry at the church is that we were touching their God, that which is now transcendent. Now you might disagree, there's a bunch of reasons to be angry at Christians, of course. But he argues that we didn't appear to be bowing down before the gods of the age, which is my rights to happiness, my rights to love to live the way I want to live and to make the choices that I want to make. Embedded into all of that, of course, is abortion, complex as it is, and eventually euthanasia. How dare you tell me when I can or can't end my life? Pushed up. On the other hand, greed as well. Pushed up. A god to the second floor. Mortgages, desires, holidays, pleasure. I think the Apostle Paul is getting at this when he says... Their God is their stomach. Their mind is set on earthly things, first floor stuff, pushed up into the second floor. So the temptation for Christians is to bow down before the gods of the age, to blend in, to become like our society. But perhaps all we're giving our children is the right to bow down to their desires, to be happy. And if you're Facebook friends with mine, have a look at that final speech of uh, that principle to his uh, students uh, a couple of days ago that I posted. I might try to repost it for you. So the gods of our age, different from the gods of their age. Second, how is pressure applied to bow down before such gods? Well, back to Daniel chapter 3. How is the pressure, pressure applied here? A couple of things. First, the demand for uniformity. Uh, See, it's everyone who must bow down, nations and peoples of every language. This is what you're all commanded to do. And it's got to be uniformity. Totalitarianism has to have it uh, because a section over here that doesn't take it is a threat to the whole. So everyone's got to bow down. Uh, You know, interestingly, in our society, everyone has to bow down even to a notion of diversity. Uh, You just have to bow down. You're allowed not to. You're not allowed to disagree, got to get with the program, uh, we're all going to this party and you're, uh, you know, you, you join me, you know, we're all got to sort of drink the cultural Kool-Aid, uh, Sydney had a little lamb, 
and uh, we all need to follow, you know. Um, and a wall of something will head your way unless you bow down. And some of you who are on Facebook and social media, you know this is true. Second uh, way to apply pressure is don't make the thing that you've got to bow down to hard. It's got to nod. You've got to say the right thing at the right time. I know this sounds weird, but in the end, this bowing down is a shibboleth moment. It's a password. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar doesn't believe that everybody believes it, but he makes him do it, because then he can say, You're, you've gotten with the program. Just make everybody show up and then bow down. And by the way, it isn't hard. I mean, I, sure, sorry, in the heart it's hard to bend your spine when you want it to remain standing. But it's not like you're actually doing much. It's not like you're achieving anything. I think it's interesting that many people in our culture, or in their culture, they would have just said, look, we don't believe in any way. We don't even believe in one God. They were polytheists. We're all a bit spiritual. It's just a government thing. I know it's government overreach, but um, it's got to turn up once, do this thing, and the bottom line is we get to live. In the first century in Rome, that big one on the histo map, <laughs> our Christians had to effectively sign a document saying Caesar was Lord. It was a, called a libation. You turned up to the temple once, like voting, and, uh, but not like voting, and you pour an offering down and everyone goes, good, tick the name off the list, you can go home. But Christians said, Caesar is not Lord, Jesus Christ was raised from the dead as Lord and therefore no Caesar, no king, no other despot, dictator, prime minister or president is Lord, so I'm not going to do it, I can't do it. That's why they got persecuted. By the way, it wasn't, um, oh, they're out to get Christians. They were out for totalitarian thinking and Christians got caught up into it. I mean, and they were out to get Christians, it's true. But people would have said to you in the first century, just do it. Who cares? Just say the right thing. My favorite um, uh, is, you know, just say what you want in your churches. Or if you're going to say something Christian, make it nice. Uh, you can believe what you want in your churches and, I, and then the, teach your poison to your own children, but not in the public square. Third, get culture on your side. In verse 5, as soon as you hear the horn, flute, zither, lyre, harp, pipe, and all kinds of music, you must fall down. Uh, the repetition in verse 5, 7, 10, and 15, I think is a narrator mocking the king. You're going to make this almighty racket, and everyone knows to bow down. But these are Babylonian cultural icons. Hitler knew this. Think Wagner. I think our politicians know that in some form you're going to get culture on your side. I think advertisers sometimes, not all of you, some of you are, and, but there's a sense in which advertisers and marketers you know, feel the breeze. Fourth, encourage outrage and shame. Verses 8 and then verse 12, you have a classic sort of faux outrage. Um, verse 8, at this time some astrologers came forward and denounced the Jews. Oh, look, verse 12, your majesty, you know, these... Jews, whom I think jealousy is the motivation they would set over the affairs of the province of Babylon. They pay, they pay no attention to you, your majesty. So there's name and shame, click. Tell them they can't do it. Not allowed to believe it. Fifth and most importantly, there's the use of fear. That's the one you had in your mind, wasn't it? Fear. Whoever does not fall down and worship will be immediately flown, thrown into the blazing furnace. You get sacked. Uh, ostracized, thrown out, uh, demoted. 
and fear through anger, verse 13, furious with rage, Nebuchadnezzar summoned these three. And that's not like uh, just, you know, you get called up in front of your boss and you're like, oops, this is like a bloodthirsty time. This is Hitler, you know, you, to be summoned by him is probably to have, well, it's to have you, it's to be thrown into a blazing furnace. And it's fear also personally applied. I want to be a bit cheeky here. Uh, verses 13 to 15 is effect, effectively saying, look, we gave you a first notice. You know, we gave you a chance to bow down before and you didn't bow down. Uh, so now here's the second notice. We gave you the rules uh, to follow. And so the, the men were brought before the king. Verse 13, and Nebuchadnezzar said, is it true? You know, we told you to do it in the first place, but you didn't do it. Now, when you hear the cultural racket, if you fall down and worship the image I've made, then very good, you get to live. But if you do not fall down and worship it, you will be thrown into the blazing fire. Then what God will be able to rescue you from my hand? And then, bing, the key to the whole section. What God will be able to rescue you from my hand? So thirdly and finally, how do you stay standing in the face of such pressure? I'll tell you, if you're a follower of Jesus Christ, you don't want to bow down just because people tell you to bow down. That requires wisdom and insight into our current culture, our current standing as Christians, and what things people are asking you to bow down in front of. But staying standing, by the way, is not about pride in yourself. This is not um, it's better to live, what is it? Better to die on your feet than live on your knees. This is not that. It's not give me liberty or give me death. Uh, those axioms are pretty powerful, but they are potentially uh, uh, tickets to a sl slavery of self or a slavery of society that says freedom of the individual is the only thing that counts. In the end, here, it's not about pride in yourself or individual choices, but it's about humility before God. See, we should be bowing down, just not to that image of gold. We need to be bowing down in our hearts to the only one who has the right to ask us to do that, our, our maker and our judge, God himself. And we need to learn, the New Testament says this clearly, to bow down before the only one who will lift you up. See what never, never does? He says, get your face in the dirt and let me put my foot on your neck when you do so. But you look at the God of the Bible and you'll see a God of love, a God of forgiveness, a God of grace, a God of mercy, Bow down before the only one who wants to lift you up. James chapter 4, humble yourselves before the Lord and he will lift you up. The king should have bowed down before this God instead of requiring humans to bow down before his image. It's about the worship of self in the image, all idol worship is. So how do you stay standing in the face of such pressure? Well, you'll need to know God and you'll need to know him personally. I believe You'll need to know Jesus Christ, who is God standing before bloodthirsty Herod. He did not move. You need to know Jesus Christ, who is God standing before Pilate, and said to him, you have no power over me. You need to know Jesus Christ, who chose death rather than fear. The one who humbled himself and became nothing. The Apostle Paul says, who being in nature God, became humble. Who'd have thought, what it is to be God in nature. What that is, is to be humble. That's what it is to be God. And that's why Jesus chose the cross. In fact, you could say Jesus chose the furnace. He chose the fiery furnace. He chose to be thrown into the fire of death for my sin so that I wouldn't have to face it.
Therefore, Paul writes, God exalted him to the highest place above Nebuchadnezzar and gave him the name that is above every name, above every, above every prime minister, president, despot and dictator and boss, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow. Not the image, but the true image of God, Jesus Christ, our Saviour. And so you've got to learn to sing hallelujah to the Lord. I want you to read Laurel's quote on, uh, on page two of your zine. Laurel Moffat is, by way of disclosure, my wife. Uh, she's a writer. and She was published in the Daily Telegraph a number of, of months ago about the Hong Kong protests, and in particular, the fact that they were walking through the streets singing the 1970s anthem, Sing hallelujah to the Lord. I'll rescue you from the second verse. Listen closely to her. There's a twist here in the first paragraph, a twist for you and me. The autocrats in Beijing should be shaking in their boots like Nebuchadnezzar. And perhaps they already are, for Sing Hallelujah to the Lord was removed from several Chinese music streaming platforms. But, here it is, the business leaders of Hong Kong might as well quake too, for the protesters in Hong Kong with their strange anthem have claimed belief, at least in song, in something that is bigger than the biggest autocracy in Beijing and also freer than the freest market. What's bigger than the biggest autocrat? God is. What is freer than the freest market? Jesus Christ is. If the sun sets you free, you'll be free indeed. That means that Beijing, as well as capitalism, they're not the answer. Jesus Christ is the answer. Don't bow down to anyone or anything else. So you've got to know, really, who is standing with you in the fire. Isaiah chapter 43, but now this is what the Sovereign Lord says, when you pass through the waters, I'll be with you. Same thing with the 23rd Psalm. Though you walk through the valley of the shadow of death, I'm with you. When you walk through the fire, you will not be burnt, not ultimately. The flames will not set you ablaze. It's that knowledge that allowed Shadrach, Meshach and Abednego to say to the king, and it's knowledge of the resurrection that allows us to say to anyone who would have us bow down, if we're thrown into the blazing furnace, then the God we serve is able to deliver us from it, and he will deliver us from your majesty's hands. But even if he does not, we want you to know, your majesty, that we will not serve your gods or worship the image of gold you have set up. We will not bow down. Even if God does not give us our life here now, back again, uh, some quenched a fury of flames, others were sawn in two, are destitute and put to death by the sword. But he can do it, and the resurrection proves it. But even if he doesn't do it, I'm not bowing down. If he doesn't answer my prayers, now, God gives to them a resurrection. They walk out of that fire without the smell of smoke on them, let alone a burn on their skin. In fact, they walked in with turbans and clothes and robes, and they were bound. And you notice the only thing that the flames touched, you notice what it was? The only things the flames did not touch were the cords that bound them. In that fire, liberated but tell me verse 18 won't moderate the way you process suffering. Tell me verse 18 won't change the way you pray, even if he doesn't. 
I'm not bowing down. But maybe the key to this strength lies in the remark of Nebuchadnezzar in verse 25. He says, uh, you know, we put three in, right? Leaping to his feet in amazement. We put three in, right? Certainly, Your Majesty. Verse 25, look, I see four men, count them, four, walking around in the fire, unbound and unharmed, liberated in the heat. And the fourth looks like, and he's reaching for it, he doesn't know. The fourth looks like the son of the gods. In other words, God is with you. By the way, that's what Christmas is all about, God with us. That's why every day is Christmas for a Christian. Verse 25, we don't know if this figure is a theophany, an appearance of God, a theophany, an appearance of God in the fire. We don't know if it's a Christophany, an appearance of Christ in the fire before he takes on flesh. We don't know if it's an angel, that's what Nebuchadnezzar surmised, sent to protect them. But we do know that when we are taken into the fire of death, Jesus is with us. He will never leave you. Amen? He will never forsake you. That's why the Apostle Paul can say in 1 Corinthians 15, which I think is a parallel to this passage, that I can face death all day long. I can face the persecution. I can keep doing the right thing. I cannot say, let us eat, drink, and be merry for tomorrow we'll die. I can do all of that because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. And in Romans 8, he can say, I'm convinced that neither life nor, life nor death, angels nor demons nor Nebuchadnezzar's nor anything else in all creation will be able to, not even a fire, can separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. That's how you stand, friends. I know it's untested here in our life, and we thank God for that, but this is how you stay Christian, even in a culture where it's not death by the sword, but death by the thousand cuts of embarrassment and ostracism. We do it not by capitulating to culture, but by remaining in place. Let me leave you with uh, Laurel's let me give Laurel the final word, which I take to be a, a an important thing to do. Look at that last paragraph there. In the core for this hallelujah, the protesters, whether they know it or not, they reach past their moment in time to touch the hem of the robe of eternal God, who it is claimed existed long before the deadly whims of the current government and who will live forever after it. She goes on, and now in Hong Kong, this praise is a protest of the heavy hand of injustice and the brute machinery of the Chinese government whose power, believers in this law would say, is a blip in comparison with an eternal God, a loving God, who in time offers both true justice and the depths of sweetest mercy. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the uh, culture in which we currently live, um, for the fact that we are spared in many ways the sword, imprisonment, uh, persecution and death. We recognise that in parts of our world today, uh, Christians are persecuted by the millions and millions uh, in parts of, of Africa and Asia and in the Middle East, indeed in Australia. We ask you now to tend to their cries and their prayers for mercy and give them courage. We thank you for the way in which some of those people who have faced 
the sword have had a renewed faith in Jesus Christ. Give us the same courage as them as we go about life in Babylon here, as we enjoy life in Australia. Father, we don't want to be found with our spines bent uh, to a culture opposed to you, but rather seeking your will, your way, looking for your face, looking for the face of Christ, following him.